Support for Breaking Walls is provided by our patrons. Become a show supporter at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. You moved easily from radio oh, to television. The transition. Mm-hmm. Well, I was very lucky. You see, mm-hmm. most of us who had done all that radio in the early days of television, all of the producers and directors and writers of early TV were the uh, radio writers and producers mm-hmm. and directors. So I went right into I Love Lucy. Jess Oppenheimer was the producer. Madeline Martin and Bob Carroll were the mm-hmm. writers. Written, my Favorite Husband, which was a show that Lucy had done. The E. Varden Show, the same guy who was directing that, who was directed an E. Varden show on, on, you know. So all of those things. And so, uh, yes, I made a very fortunate transition. I was one of the busiest guys in the early television days. Programs of this sort are presented for thrills, suspense, intrigue. Then there's the comedy show. Hey, Louie, here's one that'll kill you. Why did the chicken cross the aisle? You give up? Because it was a cross-aisle chicken. <laughs> Programs of this sort are presented for laughs, for rib-tickling mirth, for genial good fellowship. The program you're about to hear, Father Knows Best, starring the eminent actor, Mr. Robert Young, is presented for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> Monday, December 20th, 1948, Los Angeles, California. We're at NBC Studios at Sunset and Vine for an audition recording. The new comedy series is called Father Knows Best. It stars Robert Young and June Whitley and features some of Hollywood's top character actors, like the just heard Herb Vigrant. Which I should say is average way for parents to feel. On this particular morning, which is an average sort of day, the Hendersons are ready for an average sort of meal, breakfast. Well, they're supposed to be ready, but you know how it is. The average mother calls... Jim, your breakfast is on the table. And the average answer is... Mother, I can't find my skate. Kathleen, come in and start your breakfast. Breakfast? Don't you understand, Mother? This is a crisis. How can I go to school without my skate? Eat your breakfast, dear, and we'll look for the skates later. Oh, but I have looked for them. I've looked just every place. They simply vanished. Vanished, Kathy. Did you look in the hall under the telephone table? Mother, that's practically the first place I looked. Well, how about the service port? They aren't there. They aren't anywhere. Oh, what am I going to do? You're going to eat your breakfast. I'll run out to the garage and see if you left them there. And don't use too much sugar on your cereal. Look way in the back, Mother, near the magazines. Oatmeal. That's all you ever get around here is oatmeal. How many times have I asked you not to leave your skates on the stairs? Oh, is that where they were? Oh, Oh, golly. I looked simply everywhere and I couldn't find them. Good morning, dear. Did you have a nice... Jim, what did you do to your chin? I came down the stairs on it. (laughs) Let me see. Oh, Jim, your poor chin. Isn't it wonderful, Mother? 
With Jack Benny and Edgar Bergen departing for CBS, NBC needs to hustle up and greenlight new shows. Father Knows Best will eventually debut on August 25, 1949. By then, CBS had completely overtaken NBC on Sunday's ratings. Trade papers labeled William Paley as Broadcasting's Robin Hood. On Sunday evenings, Jack Benny, Amos and Andy, Edgar Bergen, Red Skelton, and Horace Height joined Eve Arden in winning their time slots. All six were among radio's top 40 shows, and CBS did what NBC couldn't do, destroy ABC's Stop the Music. The only show NBC won on Sundays was Take It or Leave It at 10 p.m. However, Eddie Cantor replaced Gary Moore as MC. Cantor was out of place as the ad-libbing quizmaster and left the show after one season. Moore moved into an hour-long weekday variety show on CBS. I need two dollars, Daddy. I'm desperate. Two dollars? What for? Wing. The wake of CBS's talent raids had affected the bottom line. Overall network radio revenue dropped for the first time since 1933. The U.S. spent the first 10 months of 1949 in a recession. Competition for the advertising dollars was stiffer. Well, I can see they're certainly not casting a type. There were now over 2,600 AM and FM stations. Television was becoming a serious threat. Over 100 TV stations were on the air. Only two network radio shows had ratings higher than a 20. Just two years earlier, they were 15. Radio's average top 50 ratings dropped 30% to its lowest since 1937. Meanwhile, NBC, ABC, CBS, and the Dumont Network were reporting a combined TV income of $29.4 million. But advertisers were learning that TV production costs were much greater than radios. The extra money had to come from somewhere, and radio budgets were the likely source. Gosh, how much time have I got left? You don't mind if I get in on this, do you? How much time for what? Well, Dad, we're going on a picnic tomorrow, a whole bunch of us. Fine, have a good time. He can go on picnics, and I can't even have wings. Mm. You treat me like an orphan around here. Nobody even loves me. Oh, Kathy, stop being dramatic. Everyone loves you. Sure, but not two dollars worth. <laughs> Kathleen, your brother's not asking for two dollars. Your brother's not asking for anything. Except permission to use the car. Except permission to use... <laughs> Although by the fall of 1949, we can't continue to tell radio's story without TV, radio was by no means dead. Just ask NBC. Tonight, we'll keep focus on radio's first network and spotlight their business and programming between the fall of 1949 and the spring of 1950. Jim, I just thought One moment, Margaret. James Henderson, Jr., you are 15 years of age, and young men 15 years of age do not go traipsing around the country with girls in my car. But everybody else does, Dad. I mean, they get to use their father's car. Joe Phillips uses his father's car, and he's two months younger than I am. I wouldn't care if he was three months younger and had wings. You may not have the car. But you know your father doesn't approve of children driving automobiles. Children? 
If I want the car, I'm too young. If I want to go to the circus, I'm too old. I wish somebody around here would decide how old I am. We've decided you're too young. No matter how near you be, you never belong to me. But I can dream, can I? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 112. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we finish our five part miniseries by examining NBC's business and programming during the 1949-50 radio season in the wake of the CBS talent raids. We'll examine the steps NBC took to regain their footing as the television era began. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song, is I Can Dream, Can I? by the Andrews Sisters and Gordon Jenkins. It was the nation's first number one hit in 1950. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is still on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Well, I suppose that I have disseminated some knowledge. Uh, I can't help because I've been talking for 30 years now, I figured it out, and I must have said something in all that time of some wisdom, and a lot of people listen to television and radio, so I must have disseminated some wisdom. Yes, I go along with that. How much, I don't know. Of what quality, I don't know. Dave Garraway was born on July 13, 1913 in Schenectady, New York. He grew up a radio enthusiast, falling in love with the medium as broadcasting was coming of age. Well, it started in my closet in my bedroom at home when I was about nine. I was a child electronic wonder. At age eight, I changed some wires in a circuit diagram, and my father said, you know, that makes that circuit into a different kind of circuit, 
and it's patentable. And he got a patent on it for me as a junior in trust, worth nothing, but just as a gesture. This gave me an idea that I was some stuff electronically. <laughs> but at the same time, I got taken to a radio station and I saw a man through a glass wall talk into a microphone and it was the same sound that we heard at home, WNAC Boston. And I came home transfixed, kind of. I fixed up my closet with blankets on the walls and I had put a box up there. I didn't have any equipment, but I made a few announcements too. Gradually, I got some equipment and I got a boy on the next street. And first thing you know, we had a public address system between us and we would talk back and forth, and that was big stuff to us. Before going into broadcasting, Garraway worked as a Harvard lab assistant and a salesman until a life-changing experience landed him a job at NBC. You know, there are moments in your life when your whole life hangs in the balance, and the decision is yes or no, go or no go. And I know where several of mine have been, most people know what they did. Mm -hmm. Mine was turning my head to look back through the revolving door of the 63rd Street YMCA in New York to look to see if I had any mail in the mailbox. I didn't, but standing at the desk there was a man who had been chasing the same girl I'd been chasing years before for years, and he got her and I didn't, which was all right with me by this time, this was <laughs> five years later. But I wanted to be friendly. I'd never said anything to him. I just wanted to shoot him, that's all. <laughs> so I went back, introduced myself. He said, do you play bridge? Yes. Well, we need a fourth. Come along. And the bridge game contained a girl who was tall, very handsome, and who uh, about uh, 2 o'clock in the morning in the bridge game said, I think we better break it up because I have to fire 30 pages and hire 30 more tomorrow morning. And I said, you sound like a librarian. And she said, no, I'm head of guest relations for NBC, page boys, I mean. And I looked at her and I said, 29, I want one of those jobs. And at 8.45, by gosh, I had been fitted for a uniform, and at 9 o'clock I was standing on the 8th floor by the side of Studio 8H, a full-fledged NBC page, and at 9.15, Lowell Thomas walked in, and I almost became unconscious. <laughs> there was another page there to save me from falling over when Thomas said, what studio am I in? I just opened my mouth, and, but no sound came out. And the other page said, E, and Thomas went on in. I blessed him for that E many times. <laughs> he was soon working at one of radio's oldest stations, KDKA in Pittsburgh. They had at NBC an announcer's class. Well, into that I went, and in one of the tests, after about six months, I took the test and finished. The man in charge said 27th out of 28. And I, I just think he made a typographical error, that's all. That's yeah. my opinion. <laughs> because the next test I won, and that was for not a 100-watt station, which the first one had been, but for a 50,000-watt station, KDKA in Pittsburgh. Uh -huh. And I went down there and became special events director. Lucky again, the manager called me in, interviewed me, and said, well, can you ad-lib? And I said, I think so. Uh, he said, well, go down to the studio and 
make believe that you're uh, reporting the National Open Golf Tournament. Uh, Bobby Jones is two strokes ahead, and you're coming up in the 17th hole. Little did he know that I had a one handicap golf uh-huh. <laughs> score. <laughs> so I went down there and I had lived and had lived and had lived and had lived. Tournament finished, I awarded the prizes, and it was about over an hour when the engineer got up and went out. And he came back and he said, Hey, you might as well stop. They've all gone home. They've forgotten all about me. <laughs> <laughs> they said, He does fine. I got the job. And they, uh, they all went home. When the U.S. entered World War II, Garraway joined the Navy. While stationed in Honolulu, he hosted a radio show playing jazz records and reminiscing about the old days back in Chicago. It became a hit. During that time, I wanted to work, really. And I went around to KGU, which was the NBC affiliate, and said, you need anybody to do any uh, announcing or anything? Uh, I work for NBC and WMAQ in Chicago. And the program manager just put his arms around me and said, buddy, you are the man I've been waiting for. Here's the key to the station. Take over at 9 o'clock and sign off at 1. And that's where I developed these verbal techniques that I told you about. And... Uh, learned something about jazz, not a great deal. I learned that if you talk directly to people, one night, for example, the first hit I got, there was a bank of phones on the wall, 10 or 15 phones. I got taking a walking tour from my own house up LaSalle Street in Chicago, and then across down Dearborn, and down Gothi, and then I think I crossed over and went over to the Michigan street by street and house by house. I don't know why I did this, I just did it. And that bank of phones began to light up like I'd never seen. I did that for many cities that I knew something about. Fortunately, my father had been a troubleshooter for GE and we'd lived in 15 or 20 cities Mm -hmm. and I could do it for a lot of cities. I found that if you directed yourself to individuals and things that concern them intimately, small things, not big things, they really heard and they really got a reaction. And I I never forgot that lesson, I hope, and I I use it today. So I've got a whole bunch of information uh, working, I think Mm -hmm. I worked uh, two years almost doing that for this nice guy who paid me a little money for it. Not much, but enough, you know. After the war, Garraway went back to the Windy City. He and his wife rented a large apartment on the waterfront. He began to work at WMAQ. Garraway wound up hosting the midnight time slot because he was one of the few staffers with a car. This became the 1160 Club, so named after a popular Harry James record. First I was going to do it with popular music, and then I thought of symphonic music, and then a good friend of mine said, why don't you let me build you a really good jazz show? I know jazz, and he did very well. Mm -hmm. He built a jazz show, and as he built it, I found that I didn't really know anything about jazz, but I discovered it. And as I discovered it, my enthusiasm for what I was discovering bubbled over, and somebody in the ecstasy of happiness is an audible sound. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, transmits in both senses. Goes and makes the other guy feel good too, I think. 
He addressed listeners as Old Tiger or Honeybee. And the unusual words he used to describe a singer or a piece of music soon gained a following. And that show, the 1160 Club, it was called, 1160 mm -hmm. meaning midnight, or because it was a record by that title, was the first successful show we had. It was due to Jules Herberbold, the program manager, that it stayed on because I did a lot of verbal things in it that were eccentric by normal standards. Odd stories and offbeat stories that weren't usually told, a lot of which I swiped from the New Yorker magazine, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like my only joke, uh, I don't tell jokes anymore. I've found that if I try to tell a joke, I step on the end so often, I'll screw it up somehow on the, on the last word that I just try to avoid it. But I would say something like, I understand that the uh, night watchman at the Audubon Society has been seen sleeping with his head under his arm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, standing on one foot, too. Uh, and just let it go at that. And, and this was all alone in the studio. Uh program cemented his partnership with writer Charlie Andrews. Still a champion of jazz, he organized concerts and put together a jazz circuit of local clubs. We were not allowed to have musicians as guests. There was a music strike on at that oh, time. Uh -huh. or, or No, that was just a general rule. No striking was involved. No musician could be a guest. It's very strange. So we had to do without guests in general. Occasionally we had non-musical guests, but not very many, because I was interested in the point-to-point, person-to-person kind of communication, not the three-way mm -hmm. triangular thing, which is an entirely different mechanism, where empathy doesn't enter into it very much, mm -hmm. like empathy entered into that show. Voted the number one disc jockey by both listeners and peers, it didn't take long for Garraway to go full network on NBC. It might be the Dave Garraway show for a while or so. Yeah, you, you Garraway? There's been some talk, yeah. Well, what does the show consist of? Roughly, you mean? Roughly. Well, Dr. Joseph Galicchio, that's the orchestra, not very rough. Vivian Martin, very smooth. Things like that. The Yard Van Damme Quintet over there, do you know about them? Wonderful yeah. people. That sounds like it might be pretty good. You got a guest star? Yeah, yeah, we have a first magnitude, but very small guest star. Is that clear? Not quite. That's good. Oh, Tony Harper is here. Oh. She's a little tiny, real big singer. I know, and uh, do you mind if I stick around through the show? I don't think we can avoid this, can we, old dear? Lie down over there in the corner there with the wrapped up dog house. And you too, Tiger, you can uh, get as close as you like. Please come very close, in fact. Put up a foot or two, use whatever oxygen's around your house, and see what you feel about a piece that Dr. Joe and the band have whipped up called, uh... As a matter of fact, I don't think I'd better tell you the title of this. You just enjoy it in the raw, please. Simultaneously, 
NBC launched Dial Dave Garraway, a 15-minute weekday show. It was the combination of these two shows which took him to TV in 1949, with Garraway at large. It was a free-form music program and variety show, still hailed as a prime example of the Chicago School of Broadcasting. It often broke the fourth wall, as viewers watched Garraway wander around the set, talking to crew members, or working the equipment into a routine. These experiences would lead Garraway towards national icon status, when on January 14th, 1952, he became MC for the debuting Today Show. I wasn't paying enough attention to my job at the time. I think I was tired. It's not an excuse, it's a fact. I think I was weary because I had worked tremendously for the years preceding that period. Worked constantly, 300 days a year or more in many instances. And I was traveling constantly and just doing all kinds of work. And I had a personal problem which I will not go into. When I was ready and I had had enough rest, or I took time to have all of the cobwebs blown out of my head, I went back to work. I changed record companies, changed attorneys, changed accountants, changed picture companies, and changed my clothes, and just went right back to work again. Your Hit Parade, starring Frank Sinatra. Lucky Strike presents your hit parade with Axel Stordahl, the Lucky Strike Orchestra, Ken Lane and the Hit Paraders, and starring Frank Sinatra. When you're down and out, lift up your head and shout, there's gonna be a great day. Early in 1949, with Frank Sinatra's earnings hitting a six-year low and his marriage to Nancy Barbado in shambles, he sucker-punched a bartender who couldn't figure out how to make a drink Sinatra wanted. He avoided a lawsuit by agreeing to apologize. What I do with my life is of my own doing. I live it the best way I can. I've been criticized on many, many occasions because of acquaintances and what have you. But I don't do those things to have anybody follow me in doing that same thing, is what I mean. Do you think your boiling point is low? Not anymore, it used to be. I think that comes with a normal growing up and the way of living with friends, people with whom you become acquainted. I've always admired people who are gentle and who have great patience. Another sun rises over fabulous and mighty Manhattan, where visitors by thousands seek out historical landmarks on its placid streets. At the end of May, Sinatra quit the hit parade. Lucky Strike would swallow the insult and negotiate a new show. His single spent 59 weeks on the charts, 
but his latest album, Frankly Sentimental, released in June, completely flopped. During the entire calendar year of 1949, Sinatra laid down only 27 sides. We naturally begin it in Brooklyn. New York, New York, a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York. He was simultaneously co-starring with Gene Kelly in On the Town. Sinatra played second fiddle to Kelly, who directed the film, which received hugely positive press. On July 10th, Sinatra went into the studio to record It All Depends on You, Bye Bye Baby, and Don't Cry Joe in a session that gave hints of some of the sonic tones Sinatra would grow into in the 1950s. That September, with NBC Radio still reeling from the CBS talent raids, Sinatra's light-up time premiered. It was a 7 p.m. weekday 15-minute broadcast. It's Light Up Time, presented by Lucky Strike. Night and day You are the one Only you Neath the moon Or under the sun Light Up Time, starring Frank Sinatra, Dorothy Kirsten, and Johnny Green in the orchestra, presented by Lucky Strike. In all the world, there's no finer cigarette than Lucky Strike. This is F.S. for L.S., Frank Sinatra for Lucky Strike. And remember, friends, in all the world, there's no finer cigarette than Lucky Strike. Get a carton today. I can be happy, I can be sad. I can be good or I can be bad It all depends on you NBC's budget constraints prevented Sinatra from using a string session and his usual arranger Axel Stortle wasn't part of the production. Instead, Sinatra was paired with opera singer Dorothy Kirsten. It seemed to be an unlucky combination. Light Up Time peaked in January of 1950 with a rating of 7.1. For the season, it placed eighth among multiple-run programs. CBS and ABC ran the top seven. The Lone Ranger led all such shows with a rating of ten. The quarter-hour show was rushed and superficial. Even its title, named after the Lucky Strike slogan, suggested it was merely a vehicle to pitch cigarettes. By this time, Sinatra was deeply in love with Ava Gardner. In early December, he took her to New York for the premiere of On the Town. Meanwhile, in California at Christmas, Nancy confronted Frank about his affairs. In early January, he flew back to New York, this time to meet with publicist George Evans, who'd helped Sinatra achieve his greatest fame. He asked Evans to help him fix both his career and personal life. It was a tall order, but Evans agreed to be hired again. When Sinatra got back to California, Nancy, accusing him of having been on another affair, threw him out. 
Ladies and gentlemen, 1949 is gone and forgotten. But to Jack Benny, 1950 will always be remembered. Because 1950 is what he paid for his new suit. And here he is, Jack Benny! Thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, I want to ask you something. How did you know that I bought a new suit? I heard it on Dreer Pusser. Uh, <laughs> you heard it on what? Wait a minute, I want to hear this. You heard it? You heard it on what? I heard it on Drew Pearson's broadcast. <laughs> In the midst of the scandal, Jack Benny had Frank on his CBS program on January 8, 1950. It was an episode called Murder at Romanov's, famous because of announcer Don Wilson's flub. Frank was received warmly by the studio audience. Nobody leaves this room, there's been a murder committed. Ah, don't raise your voice, Chief. You remember, this is the classiest joint in town. Some class. Look at that broom leaning against the table. <laughs> well, that's no broom. That's Frank Sinatra. Well, I'm going over and talk to him. Say, you. Are you Frank Sinatra? Won't you tell me when we will meet again Sunday, Monday... I'll be satisfied with you by my side. Oh, stop showing off. <laughs> Quiet, O'Day. Where's O. Wilson? In the old kitchen. Where else? <laughs> you go look for clues. Now listen, Sinatra. What were you doing at the time of the murder? I was eating lunch. A likely story. What did you have? A raisin. <laughs> One raisin for lunch? Boy, am I stuffed. <laughs> Feeling a renewed sense of purpose, George Evans booked Sinatra concerts in Houston at the Shamrock Hotel. And now shall we step aside for a moment and make way for the debating team. Resolved, luckies pay more. On Thursday, January 26, 1950, Sinatra landed in El Paso en route to Houston. There was a message waiting for him at the airport. George Evans had died of a heart attack. He was 48. It helped to further Sinatra's professional and personal tailspin. Light Up Time would be canceled after one season. Truly smoother and milder. Yes, friends, Luckies are a smoother, milder, far more enjoyable cigarette. I smoke them regularly. How about you? See if you don't agree that in all the world, there's no finer cigarette than Lucky Strike. While CBS would give Sinatra a new program in the fall, his career wouldn't change trajectory until his role in From Here to Eternity in 1953. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from suspense, lights out, 
Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Ladies and gentlemen, the Railroad Hour. And here comes the star-studded show train. Tonight, the Association of American Railroads presents the famous musical success, Showboat, starring Gordon McRae and his two charming guest stars, Dorothy Kirsten and Lucille Norman. Our choir is under the direction of Norman Luboff, and the music is arranged and conducted by Carmen Dragon. Yes, tonight, another great musical hit is brought to you by the American Railroads, the same railroads that bring you most of the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the fuel you burn, and all the other things you use in your daily life. And now, here is our star, Gordon McRae. The Railroad Hour first came to ABC's airwaves on October 4th, 1948. It was sponsored by American Railroads and hosted by Gordon McRae. It ran on ABC for one season before moving to NBC with this October 3rd, 1949 broadcast. It was, along with the Telephone Hour and the Voice of Firestone, to be part of NBC's Monday Night of Music. The debut offering was an adaptation of the famed musical Showboat. This is the story of Captain Andy Showboat, the story of the Mississippi, and of the river gambler Gaylord Ravenall, the part in which I appear this evening. It is the story of the Showboat's leading lady, Julie, played for us by Lucille Norman, and of Captain Andy's beautiful daughter, Magnolia. Our other charming guest for tonight the lovely soprano of the Metropolitan Opera, Dorothy Kirsten. There's an old man called the Mississippi. That's the old man that I'd like to be. I remember it all began the summer I was 17. My father's showboat, the Cotton Blossom, was tied up at the dock in Natchez. I remember it was a warm summer afternoon. And as I stepped down onto the levee, I saw Gaylord Ravenall for the first time and took him to my heart forever. I remember that I said hello as though I'd known him always. And he took off his hat and bowed. How do you do? Do you live here? No, no, I'm just a wayfarer along the river. So am I. Which way are you going? Either way. Which way are you going? Anywhere Papa gives shows. Oh? Are you an actress? No, but I'd give anything if I could be. Why? Because you can make beautiful things, wonderful things that never happen in real life. Ah, but wonderful things do happen. Why, this very day I was standing here on the levee feeling blue. And suddenly I looked up and... I have to go now. Why? Well, I, I didn't realize you were talking to me and I don't know you. Well, if you like to make believe things, why can't we make believe we know each other? All right. We haven't seen each other for 75 years, and 
You're my long-lost nephew. No, no, no. I don't think I like the idea of being your nephew. Let's imagine that we've just met. But we really have. Yes, but let's just suppose we've fallen in love at first sight. All right. The game of just supposing is the sweetest game I know. Over at CBS, the Upstart Network won all but one time slot between 7 and 11 p.m. The Lux Radio Theater on at 9 p.m. was radio's highest rated show. And opposite this program, Inner Sanctum Mysteries drubbed NBC. The Railroad Hour managed a season rating of just 7.9. But because NBC's Monday Night of Music was a showcase for the Association of American Railroads, Firestone Tire and Rubber, and the Bell System and City Service, it was still a very reliable source of income for the network. NBC realized that if the night's ratings had to be written off, it was best to do it with black ink. The Railroad Hour would air until 1953. I started locally here in Los Angeles on local station KFI. That was back in 1930. We came out here, came out here with my wife and little baby in uh, 1929, just looking for a job out here. And I'd done no radio work back in my hometown of Peoria, Illinois, at uh -huh. all. But I'd done some advertising work in department stores and things like that, and I was looking for a job out here in advertising work. And I ran into a man in an advertising agency who <laughs> lights were turned off, they couldn't pay their light bill. It was just the beginning of the Depression in 1930, this was. And he said, well, you have a nice speaking voice, you know, like they always say. And luckily, being an advertising man, he could get me an audition. So I took an audition at one station, KHJ, and they just hired a man away from KFI. So he took me over to KFI, and I took an audition there. And fortunately, I'd had some German in high school and Spanish, and their audition at that time was largely musical. And you can't fake German when you're doing German musical terms. <laughs> so I... Uh, just hung around there for about three weeks, sitting out in the lobby, until they finally put me on steadily. So that was my start, locally on KFI in 1930, which was a very good place to work because they had the NBC hookup here at that time. NBC had no studios here. Any work mm -hmm. was done on the network for NBC, uh, KFI did it. So I was able to get some start on the network at that time. Then I went to uh, NBC as staff announcer here when they opened in, in Hollywood in 1936 and stayed there until uh, 1942, and I freelanced from then on. Mm -hmm. By January of 1950, Ken Carpenter was one of the most well-known announcers in radio. A veteran of 15 years, He'd worked for Kraft, Lux Soap, Philco Radios, and beginning that month, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company. To get a job as a staff announcer for mm -hmm. NBC, we've heard many 
stories about the announcers' test that they had? Did you have to go through all of that, or had well, you... uh, not when I got my job at NBC. Mm -hmm. No, they uh, just opened up down here, and well, by that time I had some reputation mm -hmm. because I did four Rose Bowl games on radio in 1934, five, and six. Mm -hmm. Those were released over NBC, of course, so I had a certain amount of reputation. Started doing some network shows when they first started originating network shows, commercial shows, from NBC out here. I won some auditions on those, of course, mm -hmm. but not as a staff. No, I didn't have to because my, my name was fairly well known at yeah, that yeah. time. The show Schlitz Beers would sponsor was The Halls of Ivy, written and directed by Don Quinn. Well, radio writing is a highly competitive business, and it's a great strain during the broadcasting season. When vacation time comes along, it's highly welcome. Anything you can do to relax is all to the good, and there is nothing like a trip to Hawaii in this direction. <laughs> That's so true. You know, in this business, very often the question is, from what profession do you come? How did you get into radio? How about with you, Mr. Quinn? I came from the ranks of commercial cartooning which in 1929 and 30 laid, as Variety says, a big egg. I had been giving jokes to a radio comedian around Chicago named Jim Jordan, who is now Fever McGee. Yeah. They asked me if I would write a show for them called Smack Out, which was a rural community country store skit. And I wrote this for four years, a country store rural thing, without ever having been off the city street. Mm. So you can see I'm a fraud all the way along here, writing a college show with no education, and as a city boy writing a country show. Fever McGee and Molly stemmed from that country uh -huh. store skit because we featured tall stories. This is why we called him Fever McGee. Oh, I see. Uh, that's where the name Fever came from. Yeah. And that's how you came to start writing that script. Yeah. I neglected to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that Mr. Quinn did, of course, also originate Fever McGee and Molly and wrote it for many in many years. Seventeen, to be exact. Seventeen, really. Yes. Quinn was one of the most famous writers in the business, rising to renowned status as the main brain behind Fibber McGee and Molly, as writer Phil Leslie and comedian Jim Jordan remembered. Don was a wonderful, wonderful man. Don was a great comedy mind. The comedy dialogue just flowed out of him. Just a beautiful, quick comedy mind. Awfully nice man. Everybody mm -hmm. loved Don. People are beginning to realize what a great writer he was now. I was over at Walt Disney Studios yesterday talking to some people. One of these fellas said to me, he said that Don Quinn, he, he was one of the great writers. Wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And we hear that more now than we did 20 years ago, which is as it should be. Throughout the 1940s, Quinn mulled over the idea of creating a college-centered comedy. Well, this was a mental conception which like all reporters have a play in the trunk which is never finished yeah. is the ideal book or play or production. This was my idea of a show in which a thought can be expressed once in a while. A little above the average low comedy. I have very high respect for low comedy. During the war, in the government allocation program of war messages on Fibber McGee and Molly, we found that we could sell an idea embedded in comedy very successfully. We used to take the war themes and build shows around them rather than tie them on the end of the show and brush them off. But with this in mind, I thought I would like to do a fairly literate type of show for me. I didn't think it would ever go on. It was just a dream show. But my agent and a very good friend, Mr. Nat Wolf, who was the husband of Edna Best, the English actress, 
kept after me to write this show until I finally did it to get rid of him. Mm. In June of 1949, an audition tape was recorded with Gail Gordon and Edna Best in the title roles. When both had to back out, Nat Wolfe, who was Edna Best's husband and Don Quinn's agent, thought of Ronald and Benita Coleman. Uh, how did the charming Coleman's get into the picture? By inadvertence, a lucky inadvertence, really? fortuitous. The show was originally written for Mr. Gail Gordon, who is a very prominent and, to my mind, the most proficient actor in radio, yes. and a fine man. It was written for him and Edna Best, the English actress, but Miss Best had to go east to do some Maurice Evans plays in New York, and Mr. Gordon was tied up contractually and couldn't have him, so we had to frantically recast, and... Mr. and Mrs. Coleman were suggested, and they turned out to be the ideal people. I don't know why we didn't think of them in the first place, but they have just been wonderful ever since they are Dr. Hall. As a matter of fact, he gets mail addressed to Dr. Hall asking him to solve college problems. In the fall of 1949, Ronald Coleman was under contract with Benton and Bowles to appear exclusively on CBS's Prudential Family Hour of Stars. Surprisingly, the agency agreed to give him an unconditional release. The couple then signed three-year contracts to star in the Halls of Ivy. The show premiered Coast to Coast on NBC with the episode Reappointment on Friday, January 6, 1950 at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This is Ken Carpenter saying welcome to the world premiere of the new Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman show. The Halls of Ivy, sponsored by the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company, brewers of Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Surround us here today, and we will not forget, though we be far, far away. Welcome to Ivy, the town of Ivy and Ivy College. Ivy College is coeducational and non sectarian. And its age is indicated by the fact that, until recently, the curriculum required two years of Greek. Ivy is all-American. Its student body is a pretty fair cross-section of our country's youthful seekers of knowledge. Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, Ph.D., LL.D., and M.A., is president of Ivy, at least until the end of the month. His reappointment is under discussion now by the Board of Governors, now meeting in the east wing of the library. I have to catch the 4 o'clock train back to town. I to get a $20 gold. I hope you can make it for the weekend. Gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Gentlemen, we have one more item of business on our agenda, and an important one. It concerns the reappointment of Dr. Hall as president. Hardly a matter for controversy. He's made a fine president. Shouldn't take long. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Of course not. It seems to me, as chairman of this board, that Dr. Hall's record is so eminently satisfactory that there can be no serious obstacle in the way of his confirmation. His six years of service has... Mr. Wellman? Yes. 
What about Mrs. Hall? Mrs. Hall is the nicest woman on the campus. Have you anything else to worry about? She's an inspiration. Gentlemen. What about Mrs. Hall, Mr. Wellman? Well, I've nothing against the lady personally, but it seems to me that I... I mean, this is hearsay, of course, and I don't ordinarily pay much attention to student gossip. Will you please uh, get to the point, Mr. Wellman, if there is one? There is one. To put it bluntly, there is some doubt in my mind whether a man whose wife is an ex-actress and a musical comedy actress at that is the right woman. I mean, if he is the right man to be president of a college like Ivy with a conservative tradition. It's the tradition oh, of this Gentlemen, please. Mr. Wellman has raised a point which, however seriously it should be taken, does have a bearing on Dr. Hall's reappointment. My personal feeling, for your information, is that Mrs. Hall's charm and sympathy for and with the younger element is a definite advantage to Dr. Hall's work. This is one opinion. You may hold contrary ones. But I should like to confine the discussion to a period of one half hour. At that time, we will vote for or against reappointment. Uh, uh, Mr. Merriweather? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm not an Ivy alumnus. I just happen to be a filthy, rich, old man who's dropped some fairly large sums of money on your campus. <laughs> Wait a minute, Merriweather. The dignity of this college... Oh, dignity, my foot. Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen. If you please, gentlemen. Order, please. May I remind you that appointing a president of this college is a serious matter, and any pertinent discussion should also be serious. The question of Dr. Hall's fitness... Dear, must you pace back and forth like that, like a hyena in the zoo? A hyena? That's a rather rude comparison, Victoria. A hyena is a nasty animal. If we must be zoological, let me be something a little more noble. A tiger. A lion. That's what you are, the king of the beasts. Well, thank you. And like a lion, you must be brave, dear. My dear woman, bravery in a college president... Even in a former college president. Oh, don't say that. Oh, it could happen. But as I was saying, bravery in a college president is a superfluous virtue. And practically the only virtue not absolutely required. If the governors of this college... What do you suppose they're doing at their wretched board meeting? Playing Parcheesi? Temper, Toddy, temper. Successful college presidents never lose their tempers. <laughs> I know. And, um... Uh, will you please try not to call me Toddy? Even in these sacred precincts. Someday you'll use it in front of some eager young beaver in the school of journalism. And three weeks later, they'll find me at my desk with a hole in my head and a smoking pistol in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try, dear. I know what the cheerleaders would do with it, too. <laughs> Tell me, how do they notify you that you are to be booked for another term? Uh, booked is hardly the word, Victoria. <laughs> I am not a juggling act. Well, <laughs> we all have our professional phrases, dear. Sometimes... Well, here it is. Te mori turis salutami. What does that mean? It means, here's mud in your eye from we who are about to be reappointed or not. <laughs> Latin. Well, let's get it over with. I'll let them in. You'll be busily reading your fan mail or something. Hello, Mrs. Hall. Gee, I'm glad you're home. Can you give me a few minutes? Well, frankly, Pushy, it, it is rather an awkward time. I, 
But what's the trouble? Oh, it's that waltz clog I'm doing in the Junior Follies. I, I, I can't seem to remember it. Would you brush me up a little? Ask them in, Victoria. Yes, dear. Uh, come in, Pushy. It's Pushy Morgan. Gee, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you all the time, Mrs. Hall. But the way you explain things are clear as crystal. And when I get up at rehearsal, I just... Oh, hello, Dr. Hall. Hello, Morgan. Did you bring a message from the Board of Governors? Mm, no, sir, I don't. No, I've been trying to teach him a dance for the junior follies, William. A waltz clog. He, he wants to brush up a bit. Really? Now? Yes, sir. Well... Pull that rug aside, Pushy, while I put a record on. What were we using? Uh, the sidewalks of New York, remember? Oh. Am I in the way? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Certainly not, dear. Just stand over there by the piano. Pushy has an unfortunate habit of flinging his feet sideways. It makes for a very loose line in the chorus. Now, watch. NBC programmed the Halls of Ivy opposite the evening's highest-rated show. ABC's The Fat Man. The program debuted with a rating of nine. We get material from all directions, particularly the people concerned with the show. We have bought scripts from the violinist in the show, from the musical director, from two of the engineers, from an announcer. A lot of people around the show offer ideas. Now, we hesitate to accept an idea from outside, from people we do not know. As a matter of fact, we return them unread. This is a rather, a, it's too bad because we probably passed up a great many wonderful ideas. But motion picture studios use this, too, because the, the dangers of suit for plagiarism later on are so great from uh, crackpots and opportunists that they don't dare read unsolicited manuscripts. We have to depend on known sources. We have a staff of three or four writers, of which I am one, and uh, I edit all the shows. No show goes on without my having edited every word of it and practically rewriting the told show, mostly. But it's a, it's a very small stable, as we say, of writers, and uh, <laughs> most of our shows come them from those. Are you one of the leads? He is the lead, William. Don Quinn was a master of quips and puns, but much of the actual writing was left first to playwrights Jerome Lawrence and Robert Lee, and later to Milton and Barbara Merlin. Quinn acted as editor and creative director. Don, do you work with the uh, production itself? I mean, do you attend the rehearsals yourself and so on? I work very closely with the production. Yeah. I see the script all the way through, editing every word, inserting a great deal of my own work. Then I attend every rehearsal and every broadcast. Remember, wrapped up like a mummy. <laughs> this to me is one of the writer's obligations because if anything should happen, if an emergency should arise at the last minute, the writer must be there to be make corrections and changes. If an actor has an accident on the way to the studio, this leaves a very embarrassing gap in his script. I'm inclined to lose sight of the fact that these are not all youngsters under my care. So I think it's part of a writer's duty to follow through the actual broadcast. Will you, dear? Over here. Maybe a bit more. That's it. Now, what were you saying? What was I? Oh, yes, yes. This, this reappointment. You do want to be reappointed, don't you, Toddy? I mean, William. Yes, I do. And largely on account of boys like Pushy Morgan. When I address the student body or any part of it, I can see how the world has moved since I went to college myself. In my day, we went to college for fun and to fill in a few years between high school and making a living. Some of these young old men have already lived more than I ever will. And even the inevitable few who are here to avoid work are affected in spite of themselves by the veterans and the ones who are playing for keeps. 
Yeah, that's why I like my job more than I ever did. And that's why I wish those... Those... What time is it? It's 3.37. How did you say you'd be notified? I've only been reappointed once, you know, so the procedure is not exactly traditional. On that occasion, I was notified in person by two members of the board. Merriweather, whom I like and admire, and Mr. Wellman, who is, in my considered opinion, a stinker. (laughs) Is there any doubt in your mind that you will be reappointed? I'd be an idiot to take it for granted. Reappointment means a salary increase. Oh, Charlie, how wonderful. Yes, and, and a salary increase naturally brings out the watchdog instincts of the conservative members. You mean that some of them would actually fire their president just to save a few miserable dollars? Vicky, I love you very deeply, but you are shamefully ignorant of some of life's basic facts. <laughs> I, I know, dear, but... The Board of Governors is made up largely of wealthy men, retired industrialists, philanthropists. Dissimilar as they are, they have one trait in common. None of them sees anything miserable about a dollar. <laughs> Furthermore... I... Telephone, dear. Toddy, aren't you going to answer it? Let it ring. But, darling, the governors... The governors are hard to take. Let me play hard to get. For the half season, the Halls of Ivy pulled a rating of just 6.5. It was ABC who had reason to celebrate. For the first time since its 1927 inception as NBC's Blue Network, it placed five programs in a night's top ten. And for the first time since its Blue Network days in 1933-34, ABC won a night outright. The first show went out exactly as written. I don't think a word was changed. It was, and it was a, quite a successful thing from the beginning, much to my gratification. Yes, of course. That must have been a thrill of satisfaction for, for a writer, eh? You have to dreaming about oh, it for yes, a while. Yes, this was a dream come true. It doesn't happen very often. It was purely then from the standpoint of a writer's uh, ideas. He would like to get across a thought, as you say, a serious or a worthwhile thought. Uh, That's right. Dressed up in comedy, huh? Yes, in almost every show, no matter how frothy the show itself is, we try to have at least one line or paragraph or idea yes. which you can take home with you. If it's only don't kick dogs or be good to your mother. Yes. Uh, usually it's uh, some little bit of philosophy, maybe borrowed, maybe original. But uh, in every show, we like to have one serious thought. And I think we have done it fairly successfully. But Friday was more a cause for concern than celebration. For the first time in history, the average rating for a night's top ten dropped below double digits. Unfortunately, it was the beginning of a trend. In May of 1950, the Halls of Ivy moved Wednesdays at 8 p.m., but never established itself as a ratings powerhouse. Radio audiences were shrinking, and the Halls of Ivy peaked with a rating of 6.7 in 1951. We sit there just three feet away, both with our bottles of Schlitz, both with that same please look on our faces. No wonder they call Schlitz the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Surround us here 
Schlitz Brewers canceled their advertising after June 25, 1952. NBC held an option on the show to renew in the fall with a new sponsor. But with advertising dollars moving to TV, no buyer was interested. However, the show moved into the new medium for 38 episodes, beginning on October 19, 1954. Bad news, you say? Well, frankly, I rather expected it. Well, thank you for calling. Yes, as soon as I can. Goodbye. I'm sorry, dear. Well, it can't be helped. I suppose I was lucky to get the one I really wanted. The one you... What do you mean? What did they say? Well, they said they just got the copy of Wiener's book on cybernetics I ordered. Two of the others I wanted are out of print. The Board of Governors said that? No, no, no. The campaign... The American Forum of the Air will be heard 30 minutes from now over many of these same stations. Sholton, makers of Old Spice aftershave lotion, for that top-of-the-world feeling after every shave, bring you top-of-the-world in action drama for men. High Adventure. With Sunday's primetime readings all but lost, NBC turned their attention to Sunday afternoons. They acquired High Adventure from the Mutual Broadcasting System and debuted it with Flight to Renar on January 29, 1950. The show was geared towards men, with a deep-voiced narrator sketching the story in a few sentences. It was set at the High Adventure Society, where people told tales of hard action, hard men, and smooth this is women. This your host, and this is High Adventure. Or to be precise and practical, the weekly meeting of the High Adventure Society, whose members are those of you, wherever you are, who like stories of strong men, smooth women, and hard, fast action. Hmm. If I said it more convincing, I'd get excited myself. <clears throat> anyway, meeting's in order, and on the agenda is Flight to Reynard, an aviation story of the new fighting the old, with a beautiful woman in the winner's circle. Flight to Reynard, written and directed for the Society by Bob Monroe, another story of high adventure. It's funny how many different ideas there are about flying. I guess most people think a pilot on an airliner has an exciting, thrilling job. Well, you'd be surprised how boring long hops can be to the guy up front. Or how much hard work there can be when there's hard work to be done. To me, flying was just a business, no more. So I guess it was just plain boredom and the desire to make a few dollars that made me take the offer to ferry a ship south. I was waiting for assignment to the foreign schedule, so I had a month to spare. And that's how I happened to be landing a C-47 solo on a strip outside of the Avlo in the wilder part of South America. Hey, you! Yeah? This for the Avlo? I hope so. If it ain't, they've been full of me, too. Oh, why, boy? Where you been? Huh? Come by way of Hawaii, maybe? Sure, why not? I like flying twin engine without a co-pilot. We had an ETA on you for yesterday. Well, it happens, mister. I had to wait out of front in Caracas. Bad weather, huh? Okay. And I think I did pretty good on dead reckoning. Hit this spot right on the nose with no fixes, no navigator, no range station. We got a range station. Well, how was I to know? It's not on the chart. Okay. Don't even have the name of the joint painted on the roof. Okay, okay, okay. Where's Conway Airlines? You're looking a part of it. 
I'm supposed to deliver to T.W. Conway of Conway Airlines. After that, show me some food and I'll be ready to get back to civilization. Okay. Well, where's T.W. Conway? There he is. Where? Up there. In the AT-6? Yeah. A crazy flathead. Huh? It's coming right at us. Yeah. Buzz job. Yeah. Well, watch it. Huh? Down. Fine. What you so worried about? I suppose that's his idea of a welcoming committee. Come on, I'll show you the office. Speed will roll right up to the front door. He always does. Somebody ought to teach him what you can and can't do with an airplane. Somebody ought to teach Speed Conway? <laughs> Speed Conway? Yeah. Familiar name? He was flying before you was walking. Oh. Well, nice landing. Never misses that speed. Speed Conway. The race pilot? Yeah. Well, so the ten goose finally came in, huh? Hello, boy. Thanks for bringing it down. I got paid in advance. You T.W. Conway? Sure. Here's your invoice. One beat-up C-47. Now, is there a place I can get something to eat, and after that, will you tell me the best way to get to Santiago? I already got my ticket back, so if you... <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. You just got here. What's the hurry? Well, I have to go... Come on in the office. Marie will sign the receipt for you. She's the one that keeps the books. After that, we'll go to the best foodery this side of Panama. Come on, boy. The goose finally got here, honey. I saw it land. It's beautiful. The boy here set her down right on the edge. A perfect stall landing. So now you can meet a good pilot. Oh, excuse me. I don't even know what you call yourself. Breslin. Fred Breslin. Well, Freddie, meet the best and swellest gal ever to hang around an airport. I had to put Maria here to work to keep her out of the airplanes. Hello, Freddie. Maria. Now, Freddie's hungry, and we got something to celebrate, so let's close up shop and have some fun. What are we celebrating this time? We're in business again. Conway Airlines now owns a tin goose. Okay, Freddie. What? You'll feel better after you come over to get some of Papi's roast beef. You coming, boy? We'll have to get washed up. You should go with speed. Your face is very dirty. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'd better. A dinner. A little wine, Freddie? Thanks. Go ahead and help yourself first. <laughs> I never drink when I'm eating. Or at any other time? Well, you feel better, Fred? You're right about that roast beef. Oh, you didn't answer my question. You feel better? I feel fine. Not gonna bite our heads off anymore? <laughs> Don't tease him, Speed. He'd just come in from a long flight. Well, that shouldn't bother him. Look at all the beautiful scenery you had to look at. Trouble is, you're too busy to have a chance to see it. Why, that's half the fun of flying. Getting up there, looking over the top of a mountain, seeing as far as you can see... Yeah, boy, that's half the fun. If you call it fun. <laughs> Listen to him, Maria. Wisdom of youth. A lot of work to fly in. If by work you mean money, you tell me where it is. I gave up trying to make my first million with airplanes. Thought maybe I better have better luck with my second. But all I get is red ink, huh, honey? Too much of it. Now sit still, I'll be back. I want to tell Papy we liked his roast beef. We're glad you brought the goose, boy. Now maybe I can make that second million for it. High Adventure would run on NBC until October 8th, 1950. Like my name. It returned to Mutual on January 13, 1953, before leaving the airways for good on September 21, 1954. Speak English very well. I studied with tutors. Oh. And Speed completed my vocabulary. I can imagine. Maria. Yes? I... You like the music? It is always very soothing. Care to dance? I'm sorry. Why? I always dance first with speed. I see. Well, I got the music going. If 
That's fine. Ah, it's a wonderful night. Big full moon, good food. Just a night to fly across to... Hey, Freddy, uh, come on, I want to show you something. Sure. We'll be right back, honey. I will wait. Give you to dance. <laughs> I didn't forget. Out here, Freddy. I brought you out because you being a pilot, I figured you could appreciate it better than anybody else. Appreciate what? I was hoping you might trace your career. You were a drama student, and they didn't teach radio drama in, in those days any more than they taught television drama, uh, say, back in 1938 or something like that. So what were the, the events that led you into radio then after uh, having graduated from Yale? I was broke. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have told us that. You know, there wasn't that, uh, any place to go. <laughs> I'd been a picture writer of a very, very little success in Hollywood. Then the president closed the banks, President Roosevelt just after his inauguration in 1933. I went to a party at a friend's house, and uh, a fellow I just met says, I understand you're a writer. I said, yeah, I'm a writer. So what can you write? I said, anything. <laughs> That's what you say when you're hungry. <laughs> That's right. And he said, can you write radio? I said, sure. <laughs> I didn't tell him I had nothing but a contempt for radio because I was a picture writer. He said, well, go see this fellow, Don. So I went downtown met this fellow. This fellow had a derby hat on. His name was Don Lee, and he owned the Cadillac Distributorship in California. And he also owned KFRC San Francisco, KHJ Los Angeles, and a whole string up the valley. Yeah, Don Lee Network. I remember Don that. Lee Network. Yeah, right. And he took me to lunch at a health food restaurant with Smiley Wiley, his sales manager, always Carnation Wiley, we call him. Always wore Carnation in his buttonhole. And he said, young man, uh, what can you offer to radio? And I said, well, I think I just finished this assignment at Universal Studios. I said, well, I think a dramatization of World War Flyers. I almost said World War I, but they didn't say that in those days. <laughs> yeah. World War Flyers. I think that'd be, there's Frank Luke the Balloon Buster. There's von Richthof and there's, uh, oh, so many of them. And all the boys in the Lafayette Escadron. I'm just off the top of the head. And he said, that sounds very interesting. You want to come in tomorrow and start writing? See if we like you and you like us? And I said, sure. So I went in with the brashness of 26 and seven years old and uh, uh, wrote it and it was on the air. I never knew how much money I was being paid until I got a check. And I found out it was forty-six fifty a week. In January of 1950, NBC canceled Hollywood Calling and replaced it with a new series produced and directed by radio legend William N. Robeson. The Adventures of Christopher London took to the air on January 22nd at 7 p.m., opposite Jack Benny on CBS. It was written by Earl Stanley Gardner of Perry Mason fame and starred Glenn Ford. London was a globetrotting investigator who tackled a weekly excursion against crime. The National Broadcasting Company presents Christopher London, created especially for radio by the most widely read mystery story writer in the world, Earl Stanley Gardner. Produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And starring, Mr. Glenn Ford. I am Christopher London, private investigator and sometimes student of the teachings of the Orient. In the faraway monastery of the moon of yesterday in the hills of western China, I learned many things. I like to think that one of them was tolerance. But I find it hard, hard to be tolerant of greed and murder. Yet any man who agrees to look for a beautiful missing heiress along the San Francisco waterfront is asking for trouble. And usually he gets it. 
In this case, it was me, and I got it. It started in the lavish Knob Hill home of Arthur J. Manners, attorney at law, where I had been invited on a professional basis. Fix up your drink, London? No, thanks. I asked you to come here because I didn't want to talk about this thing at the office. Oh, that's a nice place you have here. Awfully nice. Oh, it's too big. Too expensive. Now, first I'd better show you the young lady's picture. Hmm. To Arthur, my dear friend and guardian, Helen. Oh, she's a beautiful girl, Mr. Manners. Ah, too beautiful. Too rich, too spoiled. From the time her parents died five years ago, Helen Falconer has been a constant worry to me. And now this. This time I'm really worried. Now, let's see. You said a week ago she arrived on the plane from Mexico. Yes, for her first visit in more than a year. She wired me when to expect her, and she was on the plane. I checked. I found somebody who remembers seeing her get into a dark blue sedan. And that's all, London. She disappeared. Vanished. And just when I have to produce her in court next week for an accounting of my guardianship. What about relatives, friends? No living relatives and no friends in San Francisco. She's never here for more than a few days at a time. Doesn't live anywhere for more than a couple of months at a time. The French Riviera, Rio, New York, Acapulco. Only time I know where she is is when she wires me for money. Well, you've checked the hospitals, I suppose, and the morgue. Certainly. Why haven't you gone to the police? Afraid to. That's why you're here. Uh, where did I put that? Uh, oh, here, you better take this. A driver's license. Yeah, she applied for it last time she was here. Age, height, hair, eyes, and so on. Thumbprint, signature. Might help. It might indeed. You'll know her by a ring she wears. She never takes it off. Antique emerald ring. Heavy gold setting. Stone engraved with a serpent and an arrow. Find that ring and you'll know who it is even if she has her head in a sack. Yes, come in. There's a Mr. Lawrence Scoville. Oh, tell him to go away. I'm busy. I said I'd call him if I heard anything. Yes, sir. Oh, Scoville. I should have told you about him, London. Claims he's engaged to Helen. Met her recently in New York. Well, maybe, maybe not. Says she wired him she was coming and to meet her here in San Francisco. Spends his days mooning around my office. I wish he'd go back to New York. He gets on my nerves. Well, maybe I'd better start by seeing him. No. That's just a waste of time. He doesn't know a thing. You interest me, Mr. Manners. Have you changed your mind about wanting me to locate this girl? Changed my mind? No. Why? Because you're stalling. I... Yes. I suppose I am. But it's because I'm worried. I don't know how much I should confide in anybody. In that case, we're both wasting our time. Goodbye, Mr. Manners. Now, wait. No, London, sit down. Please. All right. I have reason to believe that Helen has involved herself in some sort of a smuggling operation. For the thrill of it, nothing more. That may be that the headquarters of this gang is at a waterfront dive named El Toro or El Torero, something of the sort. Mind you, I don't say it's true, but it, it may be true. Now, you must have some reason for believing it. Well, I'm not at liberty to give my reasons. I, I merely warn you that searching for her may lead you into some danger. Well, in a way, Mr. Manor's danger is my business. I'll keep in touch with you. Well, now, I'll say this. Nobody ever began a search for a missing girl with more clues. A waterfront dive named El Toro. El Torero or something of the sort. Well, it wasn't in the phone book, but I thought I knew how to find it. You take a stroll along the Embarcadero in the fog and you might find anything. Oh. I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't hurt you, did I? No. 
This fog is pretty thick, isn't it? What's the matter? You lost? Well, in a way. I was looking for a place. Uh, I, uh, I forget the name. Stupid. Yeah. What you want there? Oh, a drink. I don't mind if I do. <laughs> well, fine. Let's go. Oh, yes, I remember it now. Oh, that's swell, honey. El Torero. El Toro. That's it. A joint. Strictly a dive. Oh, you know where it is? What do you want to go there for? Well, I told you. Yeah. You said a drink. What is it really? A dame? Well, maybe. You were uh, going to buy a drink anyway. Well, certainly. Okay, honey. Only no dame you're looking for is going to be at El Toro. Against Jack Benny, The Adventures of Christopher London managed a Nielsen rating of only 6.9. Radio Daily soon reported it would be dropped in favor of The Falcon, which was moving over from Mutual. The last episode aired on April 30th, 1950. Now that I see you in the light, you know you ain't a bad-looking guy. What's your name? Smith? Yeah. Yeah, Smith. (laughs) I thought it was. I'm Babe. Make mine a ginger bourbon. I think you can find an El Toro or its equivalent on any dockside in the world. The retreat of the happy companions in Hong Kong was another El Toro. And the sanctuary of the affectionate friends in Shanghai was another. El Toro. A small, dark place within the sound of the sea where men speak in low voices to each other of their plans and schemes to catch fortune by the tail. In the small, dark place, there were seven or eight seafaring men, a couple of women sitting together, quietly, waiting, I think, for something that would never come. Well, there was a piano player, a bartender, and a waiter, and Babe and me. At another time, perhaps El Toro would have been raucous with the sounds of fighting and of laughter, but tonight, well, tonight it was brooding in the fog, waiting. Hey, Babe. I've been looking all over for you. You found me. Uh, Mr. Smith, this is Gus. Say hello to the man, Gus. Hello, hello. Hello, Gus. Who asked you to sit down? My feet hurt. Just make port, Gus? I'm Mary Maloney. Mm. Irish ship? Greek. Hmm. How long you been gone, Gus? Oh, don't you remember? I should remember how long you've been gone. i never even seen you before. Babe, listen. Get lost. I'm busy. I went up to the room before I come looking for you. I brought a case of some kind of Greek stuff. Greeks don't drink. Oh, they don't, huh? What, uh, what else did you bring? We're still married, ain't we? Who says we ain't? Yeah. I brought some perfume and stuff. Well, come on, then, you overgrown droop. Is it okay if I take a poke at Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith's a friend of mine. Oh, but, babe, I just got... Okay. Just one, though. Stand up, Mr. Smith. You're in the wrong port. It'll be a pleasure. Hey, babe. Where's my upper plate? Here, droop. Oh, that's lucky. Don't even crack. That's a nice lift you got, Mr. Smith. No hard feelings. No, not at all. Then try my left. I am not one who suffers fools gladly nor accepts much brown-nosing. I want talent. I want ability. And I will go to lengths to find it, and I will also go to lengths to put up with it. And three new customers had arrived.
Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Night Beat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat, the Chicago Star. You know, stories start many different ways. But this one began modestly enough with a zero on a typewriter. That's right, cipher, not nothing. But to one man of Chicago's four million, that zero meant death. At this point, may I take just a moment which might normally be utilized for an opening sales message... To say a word concerning the show you're about to hear. By early 1950, year, with primetime network before, transcription now an accepted practice, at NBC beginning to siphon off radio budgets to TV, small studio dramatic offerings became more commonplace. Although shows like Christopher London had flopped, the success of Dragnet led NBC to create new, well-written offerings for adults. One of these was Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy. It debuted on February 6th with Zero, and immediately received favorable reviews. New mystery can do for you. Spearheaded by the hard-hitting dialogue of its star, Frank Lovejoy, Nightbeat provides rugged realism tailored to today's radio tastes. It has all the spine-tingling qualities which attract large audiences. Contact your NBC sales representative for complete information on this fast-moving program designed to make yours a fast-moving product. Mine is a funny kind of a job. When that evening sun goes down, I start walking through the dark city, peering into bleak alleys, wandering through the bright neon, listening to the sounds of the city at night, the whisper of footsteps, the shattering roar of an L train, the sob of an ambulance siren. I wander up the boulevards, down the back streets, searching for something in the dark city. And what exactly is it that I seek? Brother, it's something more elusive than the farthest star. I seek the city's heart. Lovejoy played Randy Stone, a reporter for the Chicago Star, prowling the streets after dark looking for human interest stories. Lovejoy was supported by some of Hollywood's best character actors, like Joan Banks, William Conrad, Paul Frees, Jack Crucian, and Lorene Tuttle. Hey, I always like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. 
I think it comes from being a Leo, like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. I would not like to see radio go to the unworthies, as it might. I'd want to see radio put back in the old-timers' hands. The ones who directed it and the agencies who handled it. I wouldn't want to see radio done in any of the people's hands in the last tw 20 years, maybe. Please, Snickle. Lady, sooner or later, I gotta run out. This in May, General Mills decided to pick up 65 half-hours of NBC's time for their Wheaties Big Parade. Nightbeat was selected for sponsorship. Wheaties presents Nightbeat. On stage tonight from Hollywood, Nightbeat, another in the Wheaties' big parade of exciting half-hour presentations. Nightbeat. Hi, this is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many ways. That night, my story began with the innocent ringing of my telephone. I didn't know that on the other end of the line was death. Night beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. <laughs> When you get up and stretch and find your way to the kitchen tomorrow, reach for the Wheaties. This episode, City at Your Fingertips, is a dual tour de force between Lovejoy and Lorene Tuttle. Miss Tuttle was quite simply one of the best radio actresses in history. You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the full person, because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive, rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too, because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart or Frederick March or Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or Leslie Howard. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wished to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. It was my night off. I locked the door, pulled down the window shades of my six-buck-a-week ivory tower, and took the cork from a bottle of, uh, well, Mother Jones soothing stomach syrup, and reached for, you should pardon the expression, a book. Oh, what the heck, a lot of people read books. School children, for instance. Tonight, some other poor sucker was walking the night beat. And as far as I was concerned, the whole world could take a walk. But as it turned out, the joke was on me. The world took a walk, all right, right into my snug little ivory tower. It began modestly enough with the ringing of my telephone. Yeah? Randy, this is Matt Cummel. Where have you been? Oh, look, Mr. Editor, I'm on my own time. I called every redhead in town. I called every <laughs> bar and grill. I called the police station, the county hospital, the morgue. Where have you been? Well, you found me, Matt, at home. Oh, that's great. That's great. You'll never guess who's looking for you. Okay, I'll never guess. Mr. D. Stout's come to town. Edward DeStout, our distinguished uh, publisher? That's right. Mm -hmm. He wants to talk to you about that night beat stint of yours. What about it? Well, he's got some ideas. Maybe he wants to expand it into a column. He's only going to be in town until tonight, so he wants you to phone him right away. Hand over 23820. You got it? Yeah, uh, what are we calling him this season? Father of the Waters, Star of Stars, or just plain Bill? 
Randy, call him right away. It sounded important. <laughs> okay. Not long. Hmm. Uh, good evening, Mr. DeStout. Your humble servant, Mr. DeStout. <laughs> now drop dead, Mr. DeStout. <laughs> Jerry's on that garage. Garage? Uh, is this uh, Andover 23820? Ah, uh, this is 30829. You must have dialed wrong. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Two, three, eight, two, oh. Busy. Well, I'd have to try again in a couple of seconds, so I didn't even bother putting the receiver back on the hook. And from that little thing, it all began. I started thinking... Isn't it funny how, by just missing one number on the dial, instead of getting a millionaire publisher with ulcers, I got Jerry's all-night garage? What would have happened if I dialed seven instead of nine? Then who would have answered the phone? It was a strange thought. Through this little dial, the whole city was at my fingertips. I remembered reading somewhere that there were six million telephone combinations on one dial. Then on the spur of the moment, I did a dumb thing. I spun the dial seven times in rapid succession without even looking at the numbers. And the phone started ringing. I had a connection. Where was it ringing? Who had destiny chosen to get my call? <laughs> Some frowsy little gal crying her eyes out in the back bedroom? A dozing night watchman in an office closed for the night? Was my call interrupting a family brawl in some dark flat on the north side? Was it breaking up the sleep of some poor guy working a night shift? Well, wherever it was ringing, there was no answer. So I tried dialing the Stout's number again. I thought, what a swell idea for a column. The whole city at your fingertips. Still busy. So, again, just for the fun of it, and without looking at the phone, I dialed seven times. Hey, what is this? What? Oh, I thought... What do you want? Oh, nothing, nothing. I must have dialed the wrong number. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Don't hang up. Maybe you can help me. Help you? What is it? My life's in danger. Come again? I've got to have a doctor right away. Well, I'll call one for you. But I can't have any doctor. I've got to call one who would understand. One who wouldn't betray Fred. Then why don't you call Fred's doctor? I've called Dr. Bechtel. Bechtel? Yes, Russell Bechtel. He's Fred's doctor. But his nurse says he's out on a call and she doesn't know where to reach him. I couldn't tell her the trouble I'm in. She wouldn't understand. She'd only tell me to call the police. The police? Yes. Red's had one of his attacks. He's threatened to kill me again. And this time he's, he's gone for a gun. Oh, well then, sister, you better call the police. No. They put Fred away for good and I couldn't stand that. I'd rather be dead. Oh, 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 I, I get it. Oh, you catch on fast. Who put you up to it, honey? Sounds like the boys on the police beat. Listen, you've got to believe. Does it say so in the Constitution? Look, I'm pretty busy. Please, please, you've got to. You've just got to. You've got to. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How could this be a gag? You didn't call me. I called you. I swear I'm telling you the truth. You've just got to believe me. It's my only chance. Uh, keep talking. Look, I don't know who you are or how you happen to call this number, but if you don't help me, I'm finished. All Fred needs is a doctor, uh, one we can depend on. Fred's been sick for a long time. When he gets these spells, he temporarily goes out of his mind. 
And Dr. Bechtel can always snap him out of it. Well, we'll call him. But I told you I can't reach Dr. Bechtel. Well, uh... Oh, you must believe me. And you've got to promise not to call the police. What are you talking about? If your life's really in danger, of course I'll call the police. All right, then just forget the whole thing. Goodbye. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't hang up. Just give me a chance to catch my breath, will you? Now, let me see. Yes? Uh... Well, okay, you sound, well, you, you sound like a good kid. Maybe I can get you to a doctor, uh, my doctor, uh, Lawrence Blair. Will he do as I say? Yeah, yeah, but I better be able to tell him a few things about this, or he'll just tell me to go to bed with an ice bag and a couple of aspirins. Now, just who is this guy, Fred? He's my husband, Fred Schwery. He's threatened to kill you? Yes, as soon as he returns. Why don't you get out of the house before he returns? I'm not in my house. Oh? We were out driving when he got this bill. Oh, it was terrible. Terrible. All right, all right, now try to relax. Now tell me about it. Yeah. And then he drove me to the studio and locked me in. Said he was going for a gun to kill me. Where is this studio? I'm not sure. I didn't watch closely. I was pleading with him all that time. Oh, fine. That makes it Danny. I never knew about the studio. He's, yeah. a, he's a commercial artist. I guess he came here to work. See, we've only been married for three months. Well, aren't there any windows you can break through and get out? No, it's on the eighth floor. Well, what about the fire escape? It's at the end of the building. I pounded on the door and tried to get help, but no one's come. We haven't lived in the city very long. I've called a few friends we know, but no one's home. I don't know what to do. Now, look, there's no time for that. I'm going to get my doctor over to you. i got to know where you are. Now, you go and look out the window for any identifying landmarks that would help us find you. All right, all right. But please don't hang up. No, I won't hang up. Now, go on. Step on it. While I waited for her to return, I opened my collar and I loosened my tie. What had I gotten into? Me? Nothing. But what about that poor kid? Why wasn't she back on that phone? Where was she? Come on, lady, lady. Where was she? And then she was back. Hello? Yeah. Oh, I was so afraid you'd hung up. Well, now do you have any idea where you are? Well, there's a big warehouse directly across from this building. Yeah. And about a block east of here, I can see a radio tower. But I can't quite make up the name on it. A radio tower? What else? Well, there's just the usual apartment buildings along the street. But on the corner, there's a large supermarket. A supermarket? Anything else? Um, yes, there's a park a few blocks away. Looks like Lincoln Park. And the building you're in now, can you tell me anything about it? It's white brick, and there are two more floors above this one. All right, okay, we'll be able to find you. I'll call my doctor right away. He knows the city better than the guys who built it. He'll find you. And I'm going to stay right here at this phone. If anything goes wrong, I want you to call me right away. You understand? Yes, yes, I will. My number is Butterfield 13003. Have you got that? Butterfield 13003. That's right. Remember now, I'm depending on you not to call the police. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because if you do, I'll deny everything. Maybe that sounds crazy, but you don't know how much I love Fred. How wonderful he is to me when he's well. Yeah, well, kid, nothing sounds crazy to me anymore. I'm even ready for that thing about the storks. Now, don't forget to call me right back if you need me. I'll call my doctor right away. All right. When I hung up the phone, I was ready for a blood transfusion. I tried to light a cigarette, but the match shook so much you'd have thought I was signaling somebody. But then as I reached for the phone book to call my doctor, I started thinking again. I said, oh, Randy, it's too pat to be true. I couldn't help imagining that someplace a room full of practical jokers were doubled up in laughter over the way the girl had taken me in. But how could that be when I called her? Well, just the same, I'd better check. She said her doctor was Russell Bechtel. Before I called my doc, I'd call this fellow Bechtel just to make sure. I found his number in the book.
6699. Dr. Bechtel's office? Yes. Who's calling, please? I'm a newspaper man on the store. I'd like to talk to the doctor. Oh, I'm sorry. He's not in now. He's out on a call. Can I help you? Well, maybe. Um, does the doctor have a patient named Fred Schwery? Uh, yes, look, ma'am, there's no time for that. A few moments ago, I spoke to Fred Schwery's wife. Uh, well? She told me that Schwery had gone into a violent fit of some kind. He's had another attack? Yes, he's got her locked in his studio, and he's gone for a gun to kill her. <laughs> then you'd better call the police right away. You mean she was telling me the truth? I mean, Fred Schwery's a dangerous paranoid. He's had three attacks in the last two months. Why wasn't he put away? Well, the doctors begged that girl to commit him to asylum, but she's so stubborn. You know the address of Schwery's studio? The doctor might, but, but uh, I have no way of reaching him till he calls in. Our records show only Mr. Schwery's home address. All right, thank you. Will you please call me back if you reach the doctor? My number is Butterfield, 13003. Yes, of course, but uh, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. She wants me to get my own doctor out there. She gave me enough landmarks to find the place. Well, then you'd better hurry, because if Schwery's had another one of his attacks, and he gets to that girl with a gun, you'll never find her alive. Yes, yes, I know. Goodbye, thank you. So the poor kid had been telling me the truth. Despite Night Beat's acclaim, sponsorship with Wheaties was short-term. They dropped the show after August 14th. NBC canceled the show in November, before reviving it in March of 1951. Night Beat aired on radio until September of 1952. Blair, Jasper, Lawrence, there it is, Dr. Lawrence Blair, Radcliffe 41079. Before I could dial the number, my phone started ringing. Yeah? I was looking down. I just saw Fred drive up in the car. It's too late for the doctor. Yeah, but not for the police. I'll call him right away. No, you can't. But don't you see your life is in danger? If he's insane, he's got to be restrained. Oh, please give me a little time to try to handle it my way. No, no, I refuse to. Then I'll tell Fred the police are coming for him. Give him a chance to get away. But you don't understand. I only understand that I love Fred. Nothing else matters one bit. I've talked him out of these attacks before, and I'm going to try to do it again. All right, all right. How much time do you want? Half an hour. No, uh, 15 minutes. If you don't call back in 15 minutes, I'll know you're in trouble, and I'll have the police out there at once. 15 minutes. All right, now, I've got to hang up. You're unlocking the door. Now, remember, 15 minutes. Yes, yes, I've got to hang up now. General Mills is bringing you Night Beat. Starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Salesmen can sell better, farmers can farm better, housewives can help better. Dr. Arnold Moss, it's a pleasure indeed to welcome you to the golden age of radio. Arnold, I want to find out about that doctorate degree. When did you receive it? Well, I think you'd better explain what kind of a doctorate it is. <laughs> if you don't feel so good, don't call me. It's a doctor of philosophy, which I got in theater at New York University last June. Well, you must be very proud of that, and you had the opportunity to acquire it because you were working steadily at one location for a while, which is very difficult for an actor. That's right. I 
was in Follies, Hal Prince's Follies, and I knew that it was going to run somewhere between a year and two years, and I thought that it would afford me the luxury of going back to school and dropping the other shoe that I had not dropped 30 years before. I had done all my work toward the doctorate 30 years before when I had taught at Brooklyn College in between other things, and I went back and did it. The man you're listening to is Arnold Moss, an incredibly accomplished New York radio and stage actor who by 1950 had appeared in both starring and supporting roles all over the radio dial. Whether it was John's other wife or Merton Marge or Easy Aces or uh, Big Sister, and I did them all. I don't think there was one that I did not do. I also did things like being the announcer for the New York Philharmonic for a couple of years for being a stooge in a Spanish-speaking or a dialect Spanish-speaking stooge on one of the big shows, for being the narrator on an Archibald McLeish series about, it was called, I think, The American Story, doing all kinds of things, and they, every one of them, aside from the financial aspects of them, FBI and Peace and War, uh, Gangbusters, my gosh, Grand Central Station, all of those. I wrote some of them, too. Moss was also no stranger to playing multiple roles in a single broadcast. There was another thing that was very important about it until after the union came in and said you can only do so much. We all doubled like crazy on Gangbusters, for example. We would play six and seven parts in a half-hour show, and this called on eight facility of technique, not necessarily good, of inventing voices, of inventing characterizations with no rehearsal. You were given the script and you rehearsed for an hour and there you were on the air. And that, from an actor's point of view, kept you very much on your toes. And that, that was a wonderful thing. In March of 1950, the Mutual Broadcasting System launched a series called 2000 Plus, considered the first adult science fiction show in radio history. A month later, NBC launched their own. Produced from Radio City in New York, it would be called Dimension X and debut on Saturday, April 8th at 8 p.m. A month later on May 6th, Arnold Moss would star in Knock. Adventures in time and space, told in future tense. Dimension X, 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 X. Can you predict the future? Can you tell what will happen in a hundred years? Or in ten? Or in the next minute? Can you look beyond the known dimensions of time and space into the unknown, Dimension X? Tonight we have a strange story to tell, a sweet, blood-curdling little story that is really only two sentences long. The last man on Earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. Think it over. Suppose you were the last man alive on Earth. In the universe, for that matter. The last man sitting alone in a room. And suddenly, there was a knock on the door. What knocked on the door? You wonder, don't you? Your mind, faced with the unknown, supplies something vaguely horrible. But it isn't horrible, really. 
You'll see. The last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. Hmm? What? what? Oh, what's that? Good morning, man. What? What? Who are you? You have regained consciousness. Well, who are you? I am Azan. Maybe if I close my eyes, it'll go away. I will not go away, man. No, no, I, I guess I am awake. Who? What are you? I am Azan. Well, what's that? Azan is intelligent life. Why well, don't... What happened? Where are you from? From planet seven in the third galaxy in the fourth quadrant. Where? It is not necessary to repeat information which is correct in the original statement. Planet 7? You mean I'm not on Earth? You are still on your planet. Well, then what are you doing here? The Zans have annexed your world. You mean you've conquered Earth? Yes, that is correct. We will now prepare your planet for habitation by the Zan. Well, how about the people? There is no longer any use for large numbers of lower life forms. Therefore, we have dispensed with them. Dispensed with... You mean you've... When did all this happen? Two days ago. You have been unconscious until now. You really mean I'm the last man on Earth? That is correct. Identify yourself now. Uh, what? Kindly provide data as to your position in the elementary social order of your planet. Oh, oh, uh... Well, I, I, I'm Walter Phelan... Associate Professor of Anthropology at Nathan University. H how is it you speak English? We have deciphered your written and recorded records. It is not difficult to reconstruct your language. Very type of auditory communication. Oh. Is there anything you want to complete your natural habitat? You mean I'm a prisoner? That is correct. What will you want further in your room? Well, do I have to stay here? Yes. The rest of my life? Forever. Well, then you better bring in my books, uh, uh... I gotta call you something. Do you, do you mind if I call you, uh, George? It is immaterial. All right, then, George. You know, I, I can't really believe this. That is a characteristic of low-life form. I'm trying to take this in without going off balance completely. I will be back, Associate Professor of Anthropology. It's all right, George. Just call me Walter. Very well, Walter. I will be back with your books. All right, George. I'll be seeing you around. You will not be around, Walter. You will be here. Yes, the last man on Earth sat alone in a room. A rather peculiar room. He just noticed how peculiar it was. And he'd been studying out the reason for its peculiarity. His conclusion didn't horrify him, but it annoyed him. There was a knock on the door. Come in. Oh, hello, George. Hello, Walter. What can I do for you? Point one, you will please henceforth sit with your chair pointed the other way. I thought so. That plain wall is different from the other sides, isn't it? That is correct. It is transparent. That's what I thought. I'm in a zoo, right? That is correct. I knew it. And if I persist in sitting with my back to it, what then? You'll kill me, I ask, hopefully? No, we will not kill you. It's too bad. George, I'll face the bars and perform for the people. I, I mean for the Zans. 
How many other animals do you have here in the zoo, George? 216. A male and female each of 108 kinds. Male and female of... of all the animals? There is a female of your species among the collection. Anyone I know? Never mind. It doesn't matter anyway. Well, George, you started out with point one. I suppose there's a point two kicking around somewhere. What is it? Something we do not understand. Two of the other animals sleep and do not wake. They are cold. What is wrong with them, Walter? Well, they must be dead. Dead? That means stopped. But nothing stopped them. Each was alone. Sure, they, 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 they just died. But I have told you they were alone. Nothing stopped them. George, do you mean to tell me that you don't know what natural death is? Death is when a being is killed, stopped from living. Maybe these animals just died of old age. Old age. I do not understand. George, how old are you? Your planet went around the sun about 7,000 times since I was born. 7,000 years? Yes, I'm still young. Now look, George, you've got something to learn about this planet you've hijacked. Here on Earth, we've, we've got somebody that's a stranger where you come from. Down here, our people and animals live until the Grim Reaper stops them. This uh, Grim Reaper stopped the two animals? That's right. He will stop more? Oh, he gets us all, George. This is a new factor we have not considered. But you can consider it. Because when the Grim Reaper gets through, there won't be very much left of your zoo. You mean he will stop more animals soon? Well, with your lifespan, it won't seem like a minute and we'll all be gone. Oh, it looks like you made a mistake, George. I don't think there's very much you can do about it. That is not correct. The Zahn is a logical being. We will take action. For its time, Dimension X was a wonder. Two and sometimes three sound effects men worked on each show. It was produced in a huge two-story studio, giving the crew the ability to obtain tremendous echo effects. We are here now. Blended in were futuristic musical scores composed by Albert Berman and played on the organ. Host narrator Norman Rose was the perfect voice, combining an authoritative resonance with a touch of dark irony. Excuse me. Arnold Moss was right at home in these futuristic dramas. What are you doing here? He was flanked by Joan Alexander and Louis Van Ruten. Tries to be polite, but he hasn't quite caught on yet. I don't know that it's ever been more or less mellifluous because I've never been aware of the quality of my voice. My whole theory is, and I think you would both agree with me, that as soon as an actor or announcer becomes aware of the mellifluousness of his voice, he better go out and get himself another job because he's not paying attention to what he's saying, but rather how it sounds. Sort of an advanced scouting party. Yes, I saw their spaceship. It's as big as a mountain. They're moving in on us. They cleaned off the earth with some kind of vibration that destroys all sorts of animal life. They killed everybody. Oh, no. I was afraid. Well, the cheerful note is that you and I and 200-odd other animals were picked up beforehand as specimens for the zoo. You know that this is a zoo, don't you? Yes. I suspected it. But I don't remember anything about being captured. I just woke up here. Well, they solved a lot of problems for us. Housing, shortages, wars. I don't suppose the human race, you and I, that is, have to worry about anything now. It's awful. Only they made one mistake. They overestimated us. I don't understand. They thought we were immortal. 
we were what? Immortal, like they are. Oh, they can, they can be killed. The Zans don't know what natural death is. They didn't know anyway until they lost two of us yesterday. You mean there are more than two of us? No, no, no more of our species. The, the, these were merely brother animals. A rabbit and a canary. And by the Zans' way of figuring time, the rest of us are only good for a few minutes apiece anyway. Well, it's a joke on them. They figured they had permanent specimens here in their zoo. But didn't they know that we'd all die eventually? No, I don't think so. See, George told me he was 7,000 years old and he's supposed to be young. When they learned how quickly we die, well, they were probably shocked to the core. If they have cause. How can you talk that way about it? Academic detachment. I learned it at faculty teas. At any rate, they've decided to reorganize their zoo... Two by two. Oh. Sure, they figure we'll last longer collectively, if not individually. But if they think... That is, if you think for one minute... No, no, don't, don't, don't worry. I don't. But are they going to keep us locked up together in this one little room? I'm afraid so. It's horrible. I agree with you perfectly, my dear. But all personal considerations aside, the least favor we can do the human race is to let it end with us. I don't see much point in continuing it just for an exhibition in a zoo. How can you just sit here and... and lecture? Have it, have it. But we've got to do something. Why? I don't know. It, it just seems we owe it to the human race to do something. You got a suggestion? There must be some way. They can be killed, you said. I think that anything that would kill one of us would kill one of them. You see, I, 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 I figured it out, I think. George cut his... Well, I suppose you'd call it his hand when he brought in my books. It started to bleed, red blood, but I could see the cut closing just as he stood there. And by the time he left, it was healed. I don't understand. Don't you see, whatever factor there is in man that makes him grow old is missing in the Zan. They just go on and on and on until... Well, until they're stopped. Yes. Yeah. But suppose we killed one. There must be some way. Well, but what would be the use... They wouldn't even punish us. They'd just give us our food through a trap door and put a sign out saying, Beware of the man. Dangerous. I don't think they'd have to bother in your case. <laughs> I don't see anything funny. I'm sorry. Just reminds me of Martha. Martha? My wife. She died two years ago. I'm sorry. No. Not at all. Oh, that'll be George with my books. Come in. Hello. George? Hello, Walter. Point one, I have brought your books. Point one? Hmm? Well, what else is on your mind? Point two, another creature sleeps and will not wake. A small feathered one called a duck. It happens, George. I warned you. Old man, death, the grim reaper. I told you all about him. Walter, the Council of Zahn has met. It has been decided logically that the only intelligent life to escape the vibration is you. Therefore, the logical conclusion is... You are stopping these animals by some means unknown to us. George, you're off your trolley. You will tell me now how this is done. You boys are afraid you're going to lose the whole zoo? It is necessary to save the remaining specimens as long as possible. If we do not get information, we may be forced to dispense with your species entirely. Now, wait a minute. This means you, Walter, and the female. Now, wait a minute, George. Don't go off half-cocked. Let me take a look at these animals that won't wake up. I will take you there now. Go first, Walter. After you, my dear George. Hmm. 
The show was produced live for the first 13 weeks and transcribed thereafter. It ran against Gene Autry on CBS. It wasn't long before Wheaties grabbed the series with their big parade in the summer of 1950. They began sponsorship on July 7th. Here are the ducks. This is the male. The female has been stopped. <laughs> Lucky girl. What's the matter, fella? You lonely down there? Walter, you will tell me how you stopped the female duck. You got me, George. I didn't do it. Maybe she died of the Dutch elm blight. Walter, you are not being logical. We have concluded you are stopping these animals. Tell us how it is done. I told you, George, I haven't the foggiest notion. Very well. We will have to take further action. Well, what are you going to do, George? We have methods of action you will know soon. We will go back now to your room. But aside from Friday, Saturday night was radio's lowest rated evening. NBC won three of the four time slots between 8.30 and 10 p.m., but they were all comedies. While Dimension X was well-produced, it was an outlier, sandwiched between the Joe DiMaggio show and Truth or Consequences. Well, at least we can get back at them. At least we can do something to them. Wheaties ended their big parade in August, and NBC began to bump Dimension X around its schedule. How can you say that? It was picked up and dropped without announcement, and finally went off the air for good on September 29, 1951. I was working nuclear physics these days. Well, it's hush-hush government work. I know. You're working on the Manhattan Project. I'm in OSS. It's the Office of Strategic Services. Around Washington, we're called the Cloak and Dagger. Well, I do feel that this is a great loss. Uh, speaking now of one of the most difficult things to do well, and this was the mystery, uh, mystery shows that we did very well on Inner Sanctum. That especially is a great loss. I do not care how well a mystery show is done on television. You cannot expect to vie with the power of your own imagination and your own imagination will build the most beautiful sets and will make the most horrible things more horrible. It is your imagination. Thousands of allied scientists are working together to make what? A bomb! But if anybody's going to develop the atom bomb, you want it to be us, not the Nazis. Corey Ford was an American humorist, author, outdoorsman, screenwriter, an occasional member of the famed Algonquin Roundtable in New York City. He penned several famous works, including the 1946 Cloak and Dagger. It became a film starring Gary Cooper, Lily Palmer, and Robert Alda. It's the story of an undercover agent for the Office of Strategic Services during World War II. He's on a mission to make contact with a Hungarian nuclear physicist and thwart German nuclear project. The film earned more than 4.5 million dollars at the box office. 
In May of 1950, NBC brought a version of these tales to the air as part of their Sunday afternoon block of mystery programs. It would be produced in New York and star some of the East Coast's most famous character actors, like Raymond Edward Johnson, Joseph Julian, Lily Darvis, Everett Sloan, and Santos Ortega. Cloak and Dagger debuted on May 7th. You're about to hear a new NBC presentation, Cloak and Dagger, program number one in 90 minutes of continuous mystery and suspense on NBC. Following Cloak and Dagger, stay tuned for High Adventure, then listen to The Big Guy, NBC's new unique mystery series. But first, Cloak and Dagger. Are you willing to undertake a dangerous mission for the United States, knowing in advance you may never return alive? What you have just heard is a question asked during the war of agents of the OSS, ordinary citizens who to this question answered, yes. We have the honor at this time to present a former OSS officer, co-author of the book Cloak and Dagger, upon which this series is based, Colonel Corey Ford. Thank you. OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, was America's top secret intelligence agency during the war. It was this country's first all-out effort in black warfare, dropping undercover operators behind enemy lines, organizing local partisans to blow bridges and dynamite tunnels, outwitting the best spy systems of Europe and Asia. The success of OSS is known. But the story behind that success, the story of the everyday, average Americans of every race and creed and color who risked their lives knowing all too well that if they were caught, they would face torture and probably death, is what Alastair McBain and I have tried to tell in Cloak and Dagger. We feel it is a story in which every American can take deep pride. The National Broadcasting Company takes you behind the scenes of a war that nobody knew. This is Cloak and Dagger. My name is Friedrich Schmidt. I'm a German soldier. I had a medical discharge from the Army. I was in the 268th Infantry Division. My family was killed in an air raid near Berlin. My name is Friedrich Schmidt. I'm a German soldier. I'll repeat it over and over again so I won't forget... My name is Friedrich Schmidt. Ah, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? Think back and remember. From the beginning. Everything the colonel told me to remember. Remember, Frank, from now on you'll be Friedrich Schmidt, German soldier. You have your military pass, forged signatures of adjutants, hospital certificates, ration coupons, permits to travel. You know what to do. Yes, Colonel. Carl and I parachute behind the enemy lines in Austria. We radio back information on the strength and location of German troops around Innsbruck. You realize there'll be no help from headquarters? No contact waiting for you below? Well, sir, Carl knows the country and his sister is still living there. I uh, needn't tell you the risk you're taking. Of course, you'll land in American uniform, so in case you're picked up immediately, you'll be treated as prisoners of war. However, later, if you're caught out of uniform in enemy country, uh... I think I know what to expect, sir. All right, then. 
Just one more thing. The information we're after is vital. The Third Army is closing in fast, and we must know what's ahead for them. I'll expect your first message in ten days. You'll have it, sir. Oh, and, uh, by the way, Colonel. Yes? Don't forget to have that package mailed to Rhode Island for me next month. It's my father's birthday. Cigarette, Frank? Uh, thanks, Carl. Carl, I, uh... Yes, what is it? About Liesel. About your sister. Oh, what about her? You haven't seen her for over five years. <laughs> over six years. Well, uh, six years is a long time. Running in. That's oh. us. Get ready to jump. Uh, what did you uh, want to ask about, Liesel? Oh, nothing. Forget it. Ready, number one. Ready. Jump. I'll see you downstairs. Ready, number two. Ready. Good luck, Frank. Go. <laughs> I heard the crack of the parachute as it snapped open. I looked down. I saw a patch of snow in the valley, spreading wider and wider in the moonlight, like a blot of milk spilled on a kitchen table. And I thought of Carl's sister, and the question I didn't have the courage to ask him. You all right, Frank? Yeah, I'm okay. Well, we made it. The first step. Yeah. You got everything? The radio all right? Just checked it. Nothing broke. Good. There goes the plane. Yeah. Heading back. He's gone. Let's go while it's dark. Sun's starting to come up. Keep that cape around you. There'll be people on this road soon. What do you think about that sun? What about it? Astronomers must be nuts. That can't be the same sun I used to see back in Providence. <laughs> Maybe it isn't. Schlaf nun ein, schlaf nun ein, die Nacht ist da der Morgen Hey, what is that? You've been singing that for hours. What is that, a kid's lullaby? Eh? I made it up. Oh? Made it up for Liesel when she was a little girl. I used to sing her to sleep with it. Oh. Frank. Yeah? On the plane, before we jumped, there was something you wanted to ask me about her. What was it? Listen, eh? here comes a cart. Watch your cape. Don't let the wind blow it. Yeah. Heil Hitler. Good morgen, Fräulein. Heil Hitler. How many kilometers until the railroad station? About two kilometers. Uh, Good, only two more. Uh, this rucksack weighs a ton. Hope there's no standing room on that train. I hope there aren't too many German officers. Come on. 22 episodes aired with four preemptions over the next 26 weeks. With no sponsorship ensuing... NBC canceled High Adventure on October 8th, Cloak and Dagger after October 22nd, 
and the big guy after October 29th. The network lacked the patience of CBS to sustain costs in growing their own internal productions. German soldiers will be willing to give up theirs. That obliging they are not. How far they've been. Let us have a nice compartment all to ourselves. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. I think that radio was probably one of the most exciting medias that ever was. The audience had to do a lot of work. I did a great many um, oh, suspense and escape and all of those mm -hmm. radio theaters. And the audience really had to build the sets, to create the makeup, to figure out what they thought the people were like, what the ambiance of the drama was like. It was terribly exciting. And almost everybody that I've ever known who has made a success in the theater started in radio. The last series we'll examine from the 1949-50 season made its NBC debut on Sunday, June 11, 1950 at 7.30 p.m. It had begun on CBS in 1945, but like many shows launched by NBC this year, it was most recently airing on the Mutual Broadcasting System. It starred radio, film, stage, and TV legend Vincent Price. I started in London, though I'm an American. But I did some radio over there, and radio is still a very big medium in England. The BBC does brilliant dramas and marvelous music and dramatizations of the lives of different people as they have done recently mm -hmm. on television. Mm -hmm. Then I came over here and went in the theater, and I felt that I needed radio as an extension. I started right away, about 1937, doing radio. And I still do radio. I, every chance I get, mm -hmm. unfortunately now it's cut down to a place where you really don't have time to do mm -hmm. it. There are too many commercials. I remember during the time that radio was sort of drifting out and television was drifting in in Hollywood, we would do remakes of the great shows that we had done in the great days mm -hmm. of radio. And they would be cut so and interfered so by the commercial that they lost their impact. Because radio has a continuity that is just marvelous, oh. as a play does, you know, three acts. The series we're speaking about is Price's only continuous starring role 
as Simon Templer in The Saint. Leslie Charteris created the character as a suave private eye. He was a dapper dresser, equally at home at the wheel of a fast car, in an airplane, or on horseback. Sometimes, the saint simply broke the law, if the result justified it. It was a challenge that I wanted very much at that point in my career, to try and create somebody, you know, I mean, completely. Mm -hmm. I'm not really that interested in doing that kind of a thing in television. The mm -hmm. saint had a lot more dimensions than you're allowed in television as a character. You're visual, and therefore you're limited, but in a radio drama, you can create anything you want. And it has more excitement, really, as an acting media. We delay the start of this program to bring you a special news bulletin. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, two fresh columns of North Korean troops have crossed the Han River and are moving southward below Seoul. Two other invader columns have outflanked the town and airstrip of Suwon on the east. And a spokesman at a U.S. advanced headquarters in Korea says the defense situation has definitely worsened in the past 24 hours. Keep tuned to your NBC station for the later news. Adventures of the Saint, starring Vincent Price. The Saints, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. I'm not home. It's the middle of the night and I'm asleep. I'm in Schenectady sitting up with a sick aunt. Oh. Hello. Hello. Are you Simon Templer? Well, come in and we'll compare social security cards. Thank you. I thought you were in Schenectady. Never heard of the place. Sitting up with a sick aunt. She recovered suddenly. Simon. I need help, desperately. Why? Because I'm dead. You're what? Dead. Oh, well, of course, some of my best friends... Simon, are... my name is Francis Blake. Here, read this. Read? That little item down in the corner, under obituaries. Obituaries. <laughs> Says here that the body of Francis Blake is at the Restwell Chapel... Burial at noon tomorrow. You see, the newspapers say that I'm dead. Yeah, but I don't know whether to believe them or not. You uh, are Francis Blake? Oh, of course I am. Mm. Come here a moment. All right. Thank you. Now... Simon, what are you... Ouch! I beg your pardon. You... You pinched me. Yes. But... Well, I had to make sure I wasn't dreaming. But you're supposed to pinch yourself if you think you're dreaming. I know, but this way was more fun. <laughs> also, I never heard a corpse say ouch before. Therefore, you're not dead. I already knew that. I didn't. Now that that's settled, I think perhaps we ought to go visit. Visit whom? Your corpse. This episode, The Corpse Said Ouch, aired on Sunday, August 6th, opposite The Amazing Mr. Malone on ABC and hit the jackpot on CBS. 
Taxi! Taxi! Hey, your nice rain up bright. Never mind, Louie. Oh, Mr. Templer, had I have known it was you, I wouldn't have bothered with the whimsy. Had I known it was you, I just wouldn't have bothered. However, Francis... Mm, thank you. Uh, Louie should perhaps be explained. He's a cab driver I try to avoid. I rarely succeed. Which proves to me that my life isn't all that it should be. Keep it clean. And where at this hour of the night are you going? The Restwell Chapel. Get another cab. Louis. Okay, okay. Some sport. Takes a girl to see a funeral parlor in the middle of the night. I'm merely taking her home. She lives in a funeral parlor? She's dead in a funeral parlor. Who's dead? Miss Blake. Huh? Me. Excuse me, but Louis, I got don't it. take I your hands off gonna... the wheel. I already did. Yes, so? She said, ouch. Personally, I would have liked to find out for myself, but if you say so... I do. I'll take your word for it. Only, how are you going to explain to the funeral parlor her riding around in cabs with you? Simple. I am apparently the kind of a man a girl wouldn't mind being seen dead with. Shirley Mitchell was Francis Blake, and Lawrence Dobkin was Louis the cabbie. I did a series on radio that starred Vincent Price, the saint. This was the saint in New York, I guess, and they'd written a... Restwell Chapel at your service. Brooklyn taxi driver who picked him up all the time and took him to various capers and brought him back. And then Vinny said he was going to have the show canceled because he did some public appearances in New York and they wanted to know about the cabbie rather than Vinny. But holy mackerel. I'm to pretend to myself that it's all some kind of a joke, but that... Funeral parlor looks too real. Well, we'll find out soon enough. One nice thing about funeral parlors, they're always open. That you call nice? <laughs> she have a point there. Ooh, listen to that doorbell. Chopin, at least. Ah. Oh. I beg your pardon? I said, ah. Oh. Ah. Oh. <laughs> Come in, Francis. This is an hour that comes to all. Except in states that don't have daylight saving. I, sir, was referring to your bereavement. Uh, whom are you mourning? We would like to look at Francis Blake. The hour is late, but grief knows no clock. Good heavens, an epigram. We try, sir. If you'll follow me. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, here we are. And there she is. Beautiful, isn't she? Very. <gasps> Simon, she does look like me. A little bit, but hardly enough to explain. Uh, how did she get here? Miss Blakeman. Mm. The uh, police brought her. Oh, I see. Uh, who identified her? Well, that was hardly necessary. Her coat over there in the corner. Simon. Wait a minute, Francis. What about her coat? It had her name on the label. Now I shall withdraw. You'll want to be alone with your grief. All right, but make a sound withdrawing, please. Uh, so we'll know you're withdrawn? Oh, really, sir, it's no use jesting. The dead never laugh. <laughs> well, he's withdrawn. Simon, that's my coat. It is mine, Simon, but, but look. Yes, two holes in the front of it, bullet holes. Bullet holes? The girl here, whoever she is, was, was murdered. Come on, we better get out. All right, but I'm taking my coat. I don't think... It's mine, not hers. It belongs to me, even though she was murdered in it. 
Hollywood radio, radio on the West Coast was very closely knit. I remember working regularly in East Coast radio and I told a group of people I was coming to the West Coast for a lot of reasons. Three or four of my good friends in New York radio said you're going to be very hard pressed to earn a living. They will not let you in. You're going to have a rough time. You don't know what a closed shop that is. It starts with the directors, the actors, but basically the directors and the writers have a very rigid attitude toward incoming talent, much more than New York. And I was getting this from Ted DeCorsia, Santos Ortega. I found that to be quite true. I came out from New York with my own series on ABC. I was starring in the show Ellery Queen. And the show provided me with you know, a foothold, and I felt quite comfortable because I thought they cannot ignore me. I am here doing a show every week, and they must hear it, and they must allow me entry and give me auditions, etc. Not so. It was enormously difficult. And Lillian's experience with Bill Spears saying, nope, is quite typical. I think it was Norman MacDonald, not with Gunsmoke, but something else, who was the first West Coast director to allow me in to his normal casting procedure. And then Dwight Hauser, rest in peace, at ABC. After that, it became a little easier. But when Ellery but was not that entrenched when we no, started. He was, he was sort of a beginner himself. That's right. And I think that helped. He was more flexible. doing with my coat? Wearing it when she was shot, presumably. There's another question, perhaps a more important one. Why was she shot in the first place? I suppose she had enemies. Have you? Back again? Yeah, we're back again. Francis. Oh, thank you. The little lady lost her place? Uh, Francis, where do you live? The Thornton Towers. Louis. I heard. Simon, back there... Why did you ask if I had any enemies? The coat's a distinctive one. Well, it's a very colorful plan. Yes, the girl back at the funeral parlor was murdered while wearing it. The question comes to, was her wearing the coat when she was killed merely a coincidence? Or was she killed because her murderer thought she was, uh, you? Here you are, Louie, and... Uh... I know. Don't wait. On account of you're sitting up with a dead friend. <laughs> Good night, Louie. Good night. Good night, folks. Oh, Simon, it's so good to be back home. My apartment's down the corridor. Simon, I feel terrible. Oh, you needn't. But what you said in the cab... She was wearing my coat, a very distinctive one. And then she was shot to death. That girl is dead because of me. No, we don't really know that. Well, it must be so. Somebody thought she was me and killed her. Mm, that's possible. But then that means that somebody wants to kill me. Is this your door? Oh, yes. Of course, it's also possible that someone didn't like the coat and... Uh, hey, did you leave your lights on when you left? 
No. There's a light in the room ahead. Well, that's the living room. You stay here in the hall. I'll go ahead and see who it is. But I... I just want to make sure they're neutral on the subject of plaid coats. Or you. Shh. Oh. Oh. Hello. Hello. Ah, how she was beautiful. Your wife. My what? Your wife. It's her picture on the desk there, no? Well, that does seem to be a picture of Francis. And your name, she is? Uh, my name's Simon. Ah, it is a name that fills herself with the soul, no? No. <laughs> I knew that tonight, of all nights, you would be lonely. Believe me, I'm so not lonely. I... I am here. Oh, your wife, she must have been a wonderful woman. She, uh... Your life with her was the magnificent symphony, no? Mm, chamber music would probably be more accurate if you And want. now that she is, alas, gone, I am here. Without even a pause for station identification. Look, who are you? I am Olga. Simon, I... Who is she? Olga. Who is she? Francis, and now that you two have met... Waiting uh... a moment, huh? Aha. I look on the picture, I look on the flash... The what? The flash, of which I might adding, your wife is perhaps carrying a little too much here and there. Especially there. Now, just a minute. You mustn't point, Olga. Bad manners. But I am seeing your wife. She's not bad. She isn't. That is, Francis isn't. If you like, you could try pinching her. I never pinch... Except boys. Oh. Simon, you are disappointing me. Goodbye. Well, that was quite a performance. Personally, I didn't care for her cadenza. Oh, I don't know. It was a nice cadenza, and the tootie was definitely fruity. Hmm. <laughs> that is, uh, um... Uh, Francis, the whole thing was camouflaged. For what? Take a look at the room. The room? Oh! Yes, it looks as if a junior hurricane had visited it. You mean somebody of Olga searched the room? Uh-huh, this one and, uh... Yeah, the bedroom as well. But, Simon, what was she looking for? I don't know. Whatever it was, she didn't find it. Our entrance stopped her search. Well, I'd better start straightening things up a bit. It's a good idea. I'll help you. Well, shouldn't you be going home? Oh, I don't think so. You may get some more visitors later on and rougher ones than Olga... Why? Well, maybe they'll tell us if we ask them prettily. In the meanwhile... Yes, Simon? We can practice the overture to that symphony Olga mentioned. Although the saint had Vincent Price in the starring role, no national sponsorship was forthcoming. At the end of October, NBC moved the series to 4.30 p.m. Simon? Yes? It's getting awfully late. <laughs> yes, I know. We really can't sit up all night waiting for someone to come. We don't even know for sure that someone will. Olga got into this apartment and someone else did before her. Someone else? Of course. Your coat was stolen, wasn't it? Well, I suppose, but not from the apartment sign. Not from... Well, where was it stolen from? Well, I can't be sure, of course, but I gave that coat to the cleaning shop down the block about a week ago. Cleaning shop? Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? The Carter Cleaners. Why? Because evidently it started out from there to wind up on a murdered girl's body. Therefore, come on. We're gonna... Yes, believe it or not, I'm taking you to the cleaners. Price remained in the title role until May of 1951, when Tom Conway took over for the final 22 broadcasts. 
By then, radio budgets were quickly shrinking in favor of TV. When we began our miniseries in October of 1948, radio's highest rated show, the Lux Radio Theater, had a rating of 28.6. In 1950-51, it was still radio's most listened to program, but its overall season rating was 17.9. In two years, television had taken 40% of radio's audience. The medium would never be the same. When we finally did the last suspense show in Hollywood, and it was all the people that you know who've been on every show you've ever heard from Hollywood in the old days. And we were all sitting around, and finally Virginia Gregg, who was one of the great ladies of radio, and she looked around and she said, isn't it awful? She said, isn't it awful? She said, oh, God, if only television was going out and radio was coming in. <laughs> and it is true, too. We all felt that. I have always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair in curlers, go. Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about is this a good script or a bad script. And conversely, the writer who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. <laughs> As the actor does while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. <laughs> well, they all, right on, baby. You're standing there with mud on your face. You know, you just made one of those big things and nothing happened. And the writer's going, oh. time on Breaking Walls. It's September of 1953 and Elliot Lewis is one of the busiest men in radio. He's the producer-director of four shows and the star of two. We'll join him that fall and follow him through a week to find out what life was like for the man affectionately dubbed by his peers as Mr. Radio. Reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg As well as articles from the archives A broadcasting magazine Radio Daily and Variety On the interview front Ken Carpenter, Dave Garraway, Jim Jordan Phil Leslie, Vincent Price, Lorene Tuttle And Herb Vigrant were with Chuck Shaden 
hear their full chat at speakingofradio.com. Raymond Edward Johnson, Arnold Moss, Vincent Price, and Bill Robeson were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Lawrence Dobkin and Elliot Lewis were with Spurvac. For more information, go to spurvac.com. Don Quinn was interviewed by Owen Cunningham in 1951. Frank Sinatra was with Walter Cronkite in 1965. And Lorene Tuttle spoke with Same Time, Same Station in 1972. Selected music featured in today's episode was I Can Dream, Can I? by the Andrews Sisters. Salute to Charlie Christian by Barney Kessel. Holo Holo Ha with Lottie McIntyre. It All Depends on You by Frank Sinatra. The Look of Love by Billy May. Moon Moods by Les Baxter. And Spooky by Dusty Springfield. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 in New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendigas, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Walls episode 113 will spotlight Elliot Lewis's career in the fall of 1953. We'll find out how this man became one of the busiest people in radio and how he helped grow this dramatic media as at-home audiences left in droves for TV. This episode will be available beginning March 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. So until March 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 112, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.